Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast, taking a look at some of the most intriguing and interesting stories within our pages, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, I find out about whether or not Joe Biden is really going to become the next president of America. Also on the podcast, fears of a second wave are dominating Westminster. Can the government handle it right this time? And at the very end, Rachel Johnson on how COVID is pushing her generation of 50-somethings into an early retirement. First up, even though Joe Biden doesn't seem like he can make any sort of public appearance without having some kind of senile moment, he's still leading Trump in the polls. So how has this happened? Is it just because he's not Trump? Freddie Gray, the editor of The Spectator's US edition, takes a look at this question in our cover piece this week. He joins me down the line now, together with Kate Andrews, our economics correspondent. So Freddie, as you write in your piece this week, Joe Biden just keeps climbing in the polls and leaving Trump behind. Is Trump at a loss as to how to deal with him? I think he is, or he certainly seems to be. Uh, His campaign spent quite a long time trying to sort of portray Biden as both potentially the most dangerously left-wing president ever, as well as potentially a racist in disguise because they want to appeal to black voters. And there was a sort of conflict between those two messages they were putting out. And in fact, Biden is neither of those things. So it's quite obvious that Trump doesn't really know how to land a punch on him. And as a result, they're now switching up and they're just trying to say that, of course, Biden won't have any control over everything because he's not really with us anymore. He's a bit senile and therefore the radical left are going to take over. And Freddie, in your piece, you also say that Biden's been called a Teflon candidate. Isn't that what they used to call Trump as well? So has he out-Tefloned Trump? Well, his campaign is weirdly similar to Trump's, actually, in some ways, in the way that Trump was always miles ahead in the polls, as was Biden way before the race sort of got going. And yet everybody sort of assumed that it would fall back to earth as political gravity kicked in. And yet he just keeps sort of plodding on. And then no one can quite believe that such a bad candidate, Trump was a bad candidate in the sense he was sort of offended all sorts of people, but he just kept on succeeding. And Biden is a bad candidate because he doesn't really seem to be able to make any sense. And yet he keeps on succeeding. Kate, how much of Biden's success comes down to the fact that he's just not Trump? Oh, I think a lot. In... Freddie's piece, he makes a very good point that you can project whatever you want onto Joe Biden. Freddie mentions that for white working class voters, he's that young boy from Pennsylvania. For black voters, he was Barack Obama's right hand man and very dedicated to those causes. For suburban women, Freddie says he'll bring back some decorum to the Oval Office. Biden, he's not a moderate, but he is classically center-left as America understands it. It's very familiar. It's something similar to what Bill Clinton was advocating in the 90s, and it's something that Barack Obama tried to move to the left, but very much from that 
center-left position. Americans know it. They might not love it. Uh, Republican voters may not back his economic policies, but they understand it. They're not scared of it. And Joe Biden has a history during his decades now in Washington, D.C. as being a likable guy. Whenever Barack Obama couldn't negotiate with the Republicans, they hit the debt ceiling, they wouldn't talk to each other, Barack Obama sent in Joe, and Joe was sorted out. So even if you don't agree with his politics, there is a likability that makes it very hard, as Freddie was saying before, to land things on him in the same way. And I also thought it was interesting in Freddie's piece, he talks about this pivot from Trump fighting Biden to Trump fighting the mayors, these radically left-wing mayors in places like Portland and Seattle, some of which are literally on fire, others are which trying to, are trying to defund the police. And it does seem like those talking points might do Trump some good because it actually is very difficult to pin down Joe Biden as a radical. Sometimes he'll say things that definitely fit into woke talking points, but actually during the Democratic primaries in particular, he was never one of these people saying we need Medicare for all. He was never trying to overthrow the capitalist system. He just wanted to slowly build on left-wing policies that are already in action. So again, it's not that he's anybody's favorite candidate. I think he's probably very few people's favorite candidate, but he's certainly not the worst. And from that perspective alone, it seems like he's in a good position to take on the president. Is that universal appeal enough to even persuade Republican voters, or at least some of them, over to the Biden side as well? Well, I have to admit, Cindy, as somebody who is registered as a Republican in the United States, I am planning to grip my teeth and vote for Joe Biden. I have to admit his VP pick could change that. I don't think I'm alone in that. But at the same time, let's be honest, most Republicans came home, so to speak, in the 2016 election. There was a lot of vocal opposition to Donald Trump, but Republican voters inevitably did get behind him. And I wouldn't be terribly surprised as we get closer to Election Day if the same thing happened. I don't think I'm necessarily representative. Um, Freddie, speaking of his VP pick, that's vice presidency pick, it's going to happen soon. Do we know who the runners and riders are? Can you explain for British listeners who these people are? Well, we know it's going to be a woman. Uh, he said he will pick a woman. And when Amy Klobuchar, a white woman who was considered uh, quite a strong contender to be vice president, his vice president, ruled herself out because she was white, it sort of almost forced his hand in a way and it looked like he almost certainly will choose a minority or black woman. There are several favourites. Karen Bass is one. Susan Rice is another. Kamala Harris is the main one that people talk about. It could be any of those three. It could be someone else. But I think... What the Biden campaign is worried about is that really they succeeded because, as people used to say of Theresa May, they they have a submarine candidate. He's never really dominating the news cycle and he's just being not Trump, which is why he's winning. But the vice presidential pick, if it isn't unbelievably boring, actually, if it isn't unbelievably boring, it will project him to the front of the news cycle, which I think is why... They've kicked it on a bit. I mean, they said they were going to announce it by the 1st of August, which would have been late had COVID not happened. That would have been a late time to do it anyway. But they're now delaying it even further, I think, into next week. Perhaps they can't decide, but perhaps they're just a bit worried about how to manage it in the news cycle because being this submarine campaign has been so successful for them so far. But Kate, how much longer can he stay out of the limelight? I mean, COVID has made it easier because he said he's shielding from his basement. But we're running up to November now. Surely he has to come out sometime. Oh my gosh, the man who looks like he may well be the next president of the United States is shielding in a basement. And that 
sums up the 2020 election cycle. I don't know how much longer he can stay out of the spotlight. His team are doing everything they can and pretty successfully so far to keep him out of it because the less people see of Joe Biden, the more they like him. And the more Donald Trump has talking time, the more he tends to ruin his own prospects. But The idea that he won't have some kind of campaign that includes meeting voters, even in a socially distanced way, is really very difficult to believe. There's something else to note. Whilst I couldn't imagine how badly Donald Trump would actually handle the COVID crisis, I never thought he'd be brilliant at it, but I couldn't imagine how badly he would actually handle it. By being the person out there, especially leading up to November, he will get to determine what this election is run on. If Joe Biden doesn't put his voice out there and doesn't speak to voters directly, Donald Trump will determine what is on voters' minds when they go to the polls. And what Donald Trump, I would presume, is trying to do, and and maybe Freddie can give us some insider knowledge on this, is Donald Trump will say, look, the whole world has just collapsed. The economies around the world have just collapsed. This is not unique to America. Who has the best track record at getting an economy kickstarted again? And Trump will actually have a strong economic case to make. And if he's the only one out there making the case, and he is the only one dictating the rules and the policies in this general election, then I think he could prove relatively successful. Will it be enough to win? I mean, all the polls suggest it's going to be another uphill climb for him. But, you know, these are unprecedented times for many, many reasons. He won once, whilst the polls looked very different in 2016. Well, actually, I think there was a lot of information that you could have gleaned to suggest Trump was doing well that maybe isn't there now. It doesn't mean he can't do it again. I think to underestimate Donald Trump is to undermine your own position. So Freddie, that leads me to my next question, which is that, well, we've been here before the polls have got Trump wrong in 2016. How do we know that the polls are to be trusted this time? Well, we don't. And indeed, I suspect some of the modelling that the pollsters have introduced to try and make the polls more accurate may have ended up doing what happens every time modelling people try to make things more accurate. It ends up making it worse. And so I suspect that there may be some gremlins that have crept into the polling that are making Biden look better off than he is in certain states. But at the moment, the way it's looking, I mean, they would have to be so wrong as to be incomprehensibly wrong. So I think we're looking at a much bigger shock in a way, if Trump wins now than we were in 2016. Amazing though that is to say. However, I would put nothing past Trump. He is a brilliant campaigner in many ways, and he has great political instincts. Biden doesn't seem to have similarly great instincts. And as the Trumpist keeps saying, you know, once once he comes out from out of his basement, as he'll have to in the coming months, we're going to see just quite how bad a candidate he is. I mean, one thing that debates are often overhyped as political events But these debates are going to be extraordinary, assuming they happen. Team Trump seems to think that Trump is going to sort of beat up Joe and it's going to be an absolute thrashing. I think they exaggerate what a good debater Trump is. I mean, he got pretty much badly beaten by Clinton overall. Um, He did land a few blows against her, but he was pretty much thrashed. I don't think that he's going to come out and be this amazing rhetorician against Biden. I think what you're going to see is a sort of almost amazing, comically bad debate between two old guys who can't really remember what they're saying. Freddie and Kate, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk 
forward slash voucher. And now, it's widely accepted that the government made at least a few mistakes in the run-up to the pandemic earlier this year. So as fears of a second wave, or at least a second spike of the first wave, begin to grow, Katie Balls asks in this week's political column, can Boris Johnson get it right this time? She joins me now, together with Jeremy Hunt, former health secretary and chair of the Health Select Committee. So Katie, Boris Johnson was quite optimistic about the way the pandemic was going at the beginning of summer. But you write that his optimism has been dampened in recent days. Can you explain why? I think we, we got a hint of it at the weekend with the decision to bring in a quarantine policy for Brits returning from Spain. And since then, Boris Johnson has talked about how we could be see, seeing the beginnings of a second wave in European countries. Now, the concerning government isn't that they might just have to add in more quarantine policies for different tourist hotspots in the coming weeks. I actually think they're fairly relaxed about disruption to people's holidays. Uh, I think once you've done a national lockdown, these measures seem pretty small for I. What the real concern is, is that as was the case in the initial stages of coronavirus, what we're seeing in Europe will eventually be what we're seeing here. So discussing the beginnings of a second wave doesn't mean that this could be something the UK is having on its own shores quite quickly. So the worry is ultimately, how do we live with coronavirus? You're going from two different types of crisis, the economic one, the public health one. I think the Prime Minister goes between the two, both uh, very worrying in their own ways. And I think definitely as we have eased um, the various lockdown restrictions, there's now worry again about how sustainable it is to keep the virus under control in the coming weeks and months. And it's particularly worrying, even though some are saying, you know, we could have a second wave in two weeks. I think the real worry in government is what happens if we have one in the autumn or winter, where it's much harder to deal with. Um, Jeremy, not so long ago, we were looking forward to August, gyms reopening, you know, the press briefings have finished. It seems like normality was returning, but now it seems like that's all pretty illusory. So how concerned should the government or indeed all of us be? Well, I think we've got to remain totally vigilant. That's the message. No one knows exactly how it's going to pan out. But I think there are some very big contrasts that we can now detect. I mean, at the start of this crisis, there was a huge reluctance by the government and by its scientific advisers to go into lockdown and a lot of caution about introducing measures that would impact on our daily life. Now it feels like they are racing to decide things in record time. And there's also another contrast, which is between the quite defensive tone of uh, the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, when he gave evidence to the select committee about the advice he gave at the start of the pandemic and the more open response that Boris Johnson gave when he was asked and he said whether we got the timing of the lockdown right is is an open question and I think behind all of this it's very clear to me that the government has absolutely absorbed privately if not perhaps completely yet publicly the lessons of what went wrong at the start of the pandemic which is that with a disease like this Speed really matters and days count. And that's why they are warning us that they may change their advice with very, very short notice. Jeremy, do you think there's a risk of the government now overcorrecting, overcompensating for their mistakes previously? No, I was someone who argued they should have gone into lockdown earlier. We should have ramped up testing earlier. That in the end, a strong approach on public health is actually the best way to protect the economy because it actually gets the virus under control quickly. So I'm not going to 
turn that on its head and say they're going into these public health measures too quickly. But I think Katie's point is the most important, which is the big question is, can we avoid locking down the country, putting us all at standstill over the winter in the way that we've just had to do? Because it is economically absolutely devastating. And the key to this are the asymptomatic cases. I mean, if there's one statistic that I think is most worrying about the test and trace process that we've got up and running at the moment, it is that uh, we are only getting roughly a quarter of the people who are infected every day into the test and trace system. Three quarters of them we're missing because they're asymptomatic and we just don't know who or where they are, but they are catching the virus and they're passing it on. And so... If we're going to deal, catch those asymptomatic cases, uh, we've got to be much more ambitious about mass testing. I mean, you know, there's a big debate about schools. Katie talks about that in her column. If we tested all teachers every week, that would be a very, very rapid way of discovering whether that virus was spreading around our schools. That's the kind of measure, I think, that's the ambition that we ought to be embracing if we want to try and avoid that second mass lockdown. Katie, speaking of schools, are they still going to reopen in September? Well, that's the plan, and the government has not changed the plan yet. Um, what I say in the piece is because worries about a rise in, in the number of cases, um, potentially you know, a surge in, in the coming weeks and months, ministers are starting to prepare, should they need it, the arguments for you know, if, if we get to a situation where in order for some things to open as planned, other things have to close. I think that you have a, some thinking in parts of government of the arguments you're going to have to make. And I think that if we do get to September and things are not looking as promising, as good as, you know, the greatest hope in Downing Street, you know, things have got worse in terms of the virus. I think there's going to be a big push in certain quarters to make sure that schools still reopen. I think in Whitehall, you know, it's, you know, pubs or schools is basically the question. And I think that there is a sense you can't keep schools closed, you know, indefinitely. I also think, though, the problem here is it's not so much primary schools. I think that's seen as simpler. I think there is a worry about secondary schools. And throughout this whole crisis, I think, particularly after some mistakes made in the beginning, the UK government is looking at other countries, trying to learn from what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. And I think secondary schools are particularly challenging because uh, secondary school pupils are likely to be quite independent, uh, quite social. And if you look at Israel, for example, where they had a very uh, you know low number of cases, very tight lockdown, then when they started to relax things, they had a, a spike. And that was blamed by some, some public health officials, blamed on secondary schools opening too quickly. So, so I think that will be a factor. But I think if we start to get into the point which some ministers think we could of something has to go to to come I think that we might still have a different set of things open than we currently do because it will become an argument of priorities and Jeremy as Katie says that the government is trying hard not to have a second national lockdown but if we're going for a series of local lockdowns should the government be offering more financial compensation to those businesses that have to keep being closed Well, I was very pleased to see that um, people affected by the sudden change in the Spanish quarantine rules are going to be eligible for universal credit because a feature of the quarantine that they do in in Korea, Taiwan and Japan 
is they do give financial support to help people stay at home. And I've actually been surprised we haven't heard more about that over recent months, because I think that is a very important way to boost compliance. I think the broad point, uh, which I think Katie's article illustrates very well, is that if there's a hierarchy and we have to choose between pubs and schools, unfortunately for the beer drinkers, uh, (laughs) the public's view would be that the schools need to stay open. But the grim reality is that if Chris Whitty says we need to close the schools, the government will close the schools. So the question is how you control the virus. And the reason that this is absolutely on people's minds now is because COVID symptoms and flu symptoms are very similar. And at this time of year, we have about 100,000 people at any one time who have those coughs and colds and splutterings. But in winter, it's about 360,000, so nearly four times more people. And of course, we won't know if it's flu or coronavirus. And that is why you have this potentially lethal mix, which could lead to a very, very dangerous winter indeed. And that is why, as I learned when I was health secretary, what you do in August, September and October is absolutely critical in terms of preparing the NHS for winter. Because by the time you get to November, December, it's too late to make any big changes. And that's why all this thinking will be going on now in Whitehall. And I think this is a problem which is, Ultimately, if you get to the situation where we were to have a second wave and you have that in winter, that is ultimately the worst of all worlds. If you look at the initial strategy, I think one of the things that is worrying some figures in government is they think back to some of the first things that you heard from epidemiologists, from public health officials. Patrick Valance, the chief scientific officer, was talking about how you shouldn't if you look at previous pandemic spreads of viruses, if you suppress something really hard, and this was almost a criticism of really strict lockdowns at that time, there is a problem with that, or a potential problem, which is if you suppress it really hard, it can come back stronger, you know, and more, more difficult to control. And clearly, and I don't think I'm looking at saying, oh, well, they should have let the virus run free, but it's more... The government clearly got to the point where they were like, no, we actually have to have this lockdown because we, we cannot live with this virus but that doesn't mean what Patrick Vallance was saying back then is completely irrelevant it is still the case that this virus could come back uh, in a way that is much harder to control and I think that if you look at winter it's not just um clear it's going to be very hard as Jeremy points out if you have people who have flu symptoms and coronavirus symptoms you're going to have a lot of people off work and I think one thing they're looking at is you know spit tests there's various things which if you could get them working you could have much quicker rapid results you could get them in businesses but there's also just other things which is if you don't get it under control and you need to have some form of lockdown even a local lockdown in winter is immediately much more uphill are you generally saying people need to queue in the dark in the rain to get in the supermarket now it might seem like a small sacrifice to keep the virus under control but is that feasible for the elderly it's all these things such as you know you can socialize but in a park well tell that to someone on the 10th of december you know you can get a bonfire up but like is it it suddenly gets much harder to get people to go for these measures which are going to stop the spread and then i think just on the economic argument i mean i had one government figure say ultimately if we have to go for a national lockdown around that time of year we are looking at economic armageddon there was a real question over whether the treasury is even in a place Mm. to continue something like the furlough scheme even if they wanted to so i think that's why everything is on this but the two tools they ultimately have is test and trace as jeremy said which more work needs to be done on and local lockdowns and 
is that enough? I think obviously time is going to tell on that, but I think there are issues at the moment with both of those. Katie and Jeremy, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And last, Rachel Johnson writes in this week's issue that while some of the people she grew up with are prime ministers or leaders of the NHS, national editors or civil servants, there's another group of 50-somethings like herself who've been pushed into early retirement because work has dried up over the pandemic. She joins me on the podcast now to tell me about her early retirement together with writer and comedian Dominic Frisbee. So Rachel, you write about your epiphany that you had on a recent socially distanced holiday. Can you tell us about it? I was with a bunch of friends my age, kind of university educators in our 50s. And I started examining privately what they all did. And in the course of the two weeks, I wasn't there for all of it, but I sort of knew everyone who was going. I thought one, possibly two out of about two dozen highly educated, quite privileged 50-somethings had what in the old days your grandfather would call a job. Everyone else had gigs and we had, you know, side hustles and we had slightly thinning portfolios like thatch on the top of your head in your 50s. Nobody really did that thing that maybe our fathers or did mainly our fathers because our mothers I think even my mother who's 78 I don't think has ever had an office job anyway so if it struck me that this was something that had started before lockdown and that Covid had sort of taken us all to the edge of the cliff and a lot of us were being pushed off the cliff I stood this up by interviewing Christine Ross who's a wealth manager And she agreed that um, we were only at the beginning of this. Early retirement is going to be a huge theme as we go on in the next two or three years. And there are huge financial implications for that. There are also huge personal implications for that. So I really, in my piece, only scratched the surface of it. Dominic, on your website, you list your jobs as comedian, writer, actor, presenter, voiceover and financial guru. Has COVID dried up a lot of this work as well? Yeah, I'd say my my income's probably down about maybe 60% from what it was before COVID. But funnily enough, I'm actually richer (laughs) because I haven't spent anything. Rachel's absolutely right. And there were all sorts of trends in place before COVID hit. And what COVID's done is it's accelerated them. And I've referred to COVID a number of times in articles as the great accelerator. It certainly accelerated the adoption of remote working practices. It's accelerated relationships. Many relationships that were doomed to fail have, you know, been uh, (laughs) the failure has been accelerated by the lockdown. And I think another big trend is actually, I don't think it was that big a trend before COVID hit, but it's certainly a new trend now, which is the exodus of people from the city. The future of the centre of London is not the same as it was six months ago. And Rachel, reading your piece, I felt like you had, I mean, your comparisons that you make with your peers, it was particularly drastic. You know, you mentioned the high-flying people who you grew up with, not least a certain prime minister. So does that make it, you know, even more drastic than other people might have it? In a way it does, because the contrast between the people who were running the country 
obviously since I wrote the piece I've been filling in more yet more of my peer group who are in <laughs> charge from the museums you know Nicholas Coleridge at the V&A or Zar Sturgis at the Ashmolean and you know in, in sort of every single nook and cranny all the glittering prizes are now being held by people I know almost all of them anyway and it, it's very odd but on the other hand I think what's happened during the last few months is a lot of people have actually thought, I'm so glad I'm not prime minister. And, you know, 2020 <laughs> has been a re- been really terrible year for most people. But actually, look at my garden. It's been a great year for the roses and the agapanthus, for the sourdough bread makers. And I think there's been an in- extraordinary re-evaluation. I mean, it's a huge cliche to talk about it, of, pe- of what people want out of life. And I think that what we all found was that the premium product we have is not money or power. It's literally time and being told what to do and when to do it in the way we were, I think made all of us realise how much we valued our freedom and our time. And this has been this great silver lining out of lockdown. And I and I think that the accelerated retirement that I wrote, wrote about is going to be a good thing because I think that The whole treadmill and presenteeism and commuting and the insistence that we have kind of over busy lives in city centres, all of that is going to fall by the wayside. Has how much you enjoyed this whole last few months surprised you in terms that, I mean, you writing your piece that you used to find yourself worrying about David Cameron, about what he'd do after he wrote his memoirs. But now that you have now that you have all this time, have you surprised yourself with how much you enjoyed it? have I mean I've turned into a kind of very placid David Cameron type who very much enjoys my gardening (laughs) well I mean my husband's the gardener but I've been amazed by how satisfying doing very little is and how much pleasure I get from it from instead of thinking I haven't written a thousand words in a script and a novel and you know a piece for the spectator I get up and I quietly read the paper, walk the dog, go into the garden, go shopping. And actually, I think, help, this is really nice. If this is retirement, bring it on. <laughs> Dominic, do you agree? Once the pandemic is over, do you think you'll be back on the beat or welcoming the early retirement? I live my life in lockdown anyway, and I'm a bit of a recluse. And I wake up in the morning and stagger into my shed, which is actually my office, and then you know, do most of my things from there. So it sort of hasn't really changed my lifestyle that much, apart from the fact that you can't do gigs anymore. If I was a really, really good comedian, then I would only have ever done comedy and I would have never done anything else. But because I was only like quite good and I, you know, have expensive habits, I had to sort of do other things to earn a living as well. It's meant that I'm Mr. Freelancer and I write books and I write articles and I do voiceovers and I do gigs and I go and do talks and whatever. But I do feel a great deal of sympathy for stage actors, comedians, people who only do something that is in one of the sectors that's been absolutely destroyed by this because they've had their lives turned down absolutely. And Dominic just finally while we have you here do you worry about the future of comedy after all this or do you think it will bounce back? The bizarre irony is that you know every comedian is basically like a Margaret Thatcher's little business you know they've got to book their own gigs and do their own accounts and hustle and hustle and there's incredible competitiveness 
within comedy, but there's also incredible camaraderie. And it's the bizarrely the single most sort of libertarian existence there is. And yet, despite this, all comedians, bar about three or four, are rapidly left-wing and socialist. They don't see the irony of their own existence. But nevertheless, live comedy is in deep, deep trouble. And it's through no fault of its own. It's through regulation that's been imposed on it. But to become a comedian, you, you have an entrepreneurial mindset. And so all sorts of comedians are experimenting, you know, with Facebook live shows and Zoom gigs and open air gigs in car park in, you know, what do they call drive in gigs and socially distanced gigs in tents. And they're doing podcasts. And we've seen this proliferation of of online videos, made many more of create. So, you know, people are still trying to make people laugh. But the means by which they're making people laugh have had to change and the big beneficiary of all this is youtube and facebook and all those horrible large tech corporations not necessarily horrible but you know what i mean cindy can i just say something so you know the truth is is that i am all right jack and as a, a sort of freelance journalist and writer and occasional broadcaster actually i've got a regular show now I can't complain, but I did discern that this trend, and as Dominic says, an, another accelerating trend. And for those of us who've been freelance journalists for most of our lives, i.e. me, you know, lockdown hasn't changed a huge amount, except that it is going to totally denude the com- media companies we work for of money. And all of them are all making huge cutbacks in either in staff payroll or in in the number of people they have working but essentially you know life is as it was you know you get up you walk the dog you put in a shift you make your banana bread you watch television you go to bed and that was before lockdown during lockdown and it's going to be after lockdown too (laughs) the big hit rachel is it's revealed how many media companies in all their various forms are dependent on advertising and if you listen to an advertising break on the radio at the moment the only people buying any advertising space is the government warning people about covid or brexit (laughs) yeah that too the government has become the biggest advertiser across all media platforms mark strong is the voice of covid and i'm so jealous because he's made so much money being the voice of covid telling everyone to watch it. <laughs> stay safe. If anyone yeah. else says, say, stay safe, I'm going oh to jump over the cliff that I described in my article. <laughs> All right, Rachel and Dominic, thanks for coming on and stay safe. <laughs> no! <laughs> and that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read everything discussed on the podcast. And within the issue, you'll also find Lee Child's diary... Former editor of The Sun, Calvin McKenzie, reviewing the Murdoch documentary, and Douglas Murray on public allegations that can't be proved or disproved. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.